I'm Catherine. I'm Sarah. And this is Cosmos in the Cosmos. So before we get started today, I have a bit of a sad announcement. We're going to be finishing out the 50s together and then doing our in-between episodes together. But Sarah has become too busy to finish this podcast with me. However, I decided that I wanted to keep doing it. So I am going to be continuing in the 60s. The plan is, is I'm going to be having a friend as a co-host for every episode and, or let me know if you enjoy that or if you think I should try to find a uh, full-time other co-host but yeah and Sarah and I still have a few more episodes together and thank you guys for listening to us Sarah, do you want to tell us about what you're drinking today? Mm, indeed. So what my plan for today was a Napoleon julep, which consists of cognac, elderflower liqueur, green tea syrup, mole bitters, which I didn't attempt to find, and some mint sprigs and lemon zest as garnish. But I'm very sleepy and my head kind of hurts. <laughs> so I am drinking tea. <laughs> but it's it's a fancy tea. That's one of the ingredients. Indeed, it is one of the ingredients. It's not green tea. It's um like puka nighttime sleepy tea, which has like oat flowers and lavender and like lime flower, I think. Kind of doesn't taste like much of anything, but... Very nice. Conceptually, it's adjacent sort of to what I had planned. <laughs> what you had thought about? I almost made a Napoleon julep. Well, I made mm. a few of my own modifications. The main one being, which we'll see where this podcast goes with Sarah being sober and me being not, was that I realized after finishing making it that I had made the wrong, used the wrong <laughs> jigger. So instead of putting two ounces of alcohol in this, mm. <laughs> I put more <laughs> so it tastes very strongly of brandy which <laughs> i used instead of cognac because cognac is just brandy from a specific area mm. but yeah it has that and then i think i put in everything else correctly except for i didn't make the cube of ice on the top that is supposed to make juleps pretty because I only had square pieces of ice. Maybe at some point, Sarah and I will get around to putting fancy ice in our cocktails, but we haven't reached that moment. Indeed. Yeah, if I can't be apparently bothered to procure correct ingredients, probably making the ingredients that are supposed to be in it fancy is <laughs> a step too far. I mostly procure the correct ingredients. Oh, also, that's your thing. I didn't use mole bitters. I used cocoa bean mm. bitters because chocolate mole bitters i assume is mm. kind of similar and there are our yeah and it seems i mean the recipe that i'm looking at seems like it is possibly an ad for this so well it's also like there are already like 12 bitters in my apartment so i will not be mm. buying any more bitters indeed <laughs> oh also i'm sorry sarah you didn't tell us why you chose the mint julep 
Oh, I chose a, a mint julep, well, because the name is a Napoleon julep, and in this book we'll be going back in time. I think I read in, like, a synopsis somewhere that they went back to, or, like, on the back of the book, I don't even know, like, where I read this, but I was under the impression that, like, the Napoleonic era was going to be, like, an aspect of the book, and honestly, it could have been. We'll discuss that later. <laughs> Anything could have been an aspect of this book. But, yeah, that was my my reasoning for this one. Yeah, so I chose a cocktail because I had heard of it before and I never had it before, but I was kind of curious to have an excuse to make it because it's known as a uh, Nazi fighting cocktail and it's called the Suffering Bastard. And this cocktail was a cocktail that was made in North Africa. So there were a lot of things that were not available in British North Africa, particularly Egypt during the war, because pretty much all the supplies were being sent to the troops. And so this was a cocktail that was made with what was on hand to like help people. And at the Battle of El Amain, which was a very important battle versus Rommel's Nazi army in Africa, the classic story about this cocktail goes that at the height of the battle, the guy who had created it, who was a very prominent bartender in Cairo, Josie Alom, he got a telegram from the front lines asking for eight gallons of this cocktail. And whether or not it was relevant, this uh, the British did win the battle. So that's why this has the uh, Nazi fighting cocktail. And... <laughs> I was under the impression in this book that there was going to be some Nazi fighting. So I chose this cocktail. Instead, one of the main characters sort of is a Nazi, but we'll also get into that later. Yeah, I was confused by that. I was, well, really confused about everything, but... <laughs> yeah, folks, this is a special book. So Sarah, you aren't drinking, you're just drinking tea, right? Um, well, for this one, I have made seltzer water with lemon juice as the idea of lime juice, which mocktail rating, I would say one out of 10. It is seltzer <laughs> with lemon juice, but it is a tasty, refreshing hydration beverage. So no complaints from me. Fair enough, fair enough. Do we want to vote this week? Yeah, we'll, we can vote on the basis of the recipes and your <laughs> experience of drinking. Fair enough. Well, I'm not choosing it because it's mine, but on the basis of these recipes so far, I would choose The Suffering Bastard, which let me tell you actually what's in this and what, how I made it different because I that's one I actually kind of messed with because I realized I got back from Ottawa today, which was a fun trip, but then I realized that I did not have lime juice cordial because I have not been in my apartment for a few days. So I just put in lime juice and then like half a tablespoon of lemonade mix mm. and was like, this should even out. And it has basically. It's very nice. It's like, it's lemony. It's got a little bit of sweetness, but it's not too sweet. Ooh. And then the alcohol in this, folks, is gin and brandy. And I did put the right amount of alcohol in this one. <laughs> Needless to say, though, at the end of this, if I'm rambling, uh, be kind. Yeah, and I think I think it's very good. And Sarah, sometime when you aren't feeling like you have a headache, <laughs> I think you'd actually really like it. Yeah, I think my I am interested in trying the Napoleon julep some other time also because I think that like between the elderflower liqueur and the green tea syrup, 
that has a lot of like the like floral herbal flavors that I enjoy but yours has ginger beer in it which makes it a little fizzy and so I think that my choice for this week would probably be yours because I like I do enjoy some bubbles in my drink also the um lemonade mix is that still the the big container of lemonade mix that I bought from Provigo yes yes <laughs> we've been very I've been very slowly working my way through it <laughs> Because I'm basically the only one that uses it. <laughs> but yeah, so to be fair, Sarah, I think I would have liked yours more if I had put in the proper amounts of alcohol because it tastes just really strongly of brandy. Yeah. <laughs> Which that's on me. That's This, this was purely my mistake. Mm. <laughs> but so my friend who is the bartender, when he first started bartending, he asked friends several times for a two ounce jigger. Two ounce, one ounce, that's the customary good jigger, right? And before he finally got one of those, he got a bunch that were are just like random sizes. And so if you aren't paying attention, mm -hmm. it's very easy to just make your cocktail with the random sized one, which is what I did. But I'll be I'll be on the lookout for next time. Why would they even make them in like non-standard sizes? I don't know. I don't know who would possibly want a jigger that one of the sides is 2.6 ounces and one of the sides is 1.3. <laughs> it's very bizarre to me. But I think that, yeah, I think you like these. I think what we what we should do is whenever Sarah comes to visit me in Montreal, we'll do a bonus episode for you folks, which maybe we'll even put video on this mm. one, depending how we're feeling, where we will sit down with several of our friends so we don't get too terribly drunk and we'll make all the cocktails mm. properly and make them pretty and you guys can can observe or listen to this experience <laughs> but we'll invite several friends because otherwise i think sarah and i might get a little mm -hmm. bit too drunk indeed that would maybe be a little <laughs> a little out of control yeah <laughs> but so for this week i'm voting for my cocktail and do you accede sarah i think this is the right choice but yeah, so Sarah and I, we've decided that for, and this is going to be exciting because uh, since I, my cocktail won this week, we're tied 2v2. So the fifth episode, we'll know who's the winner. So next week, Sarah and I should really, or in two weeks, sorry, Sarah and I should really focus on our cocktails. If you want this podcast every week, then we'll need a few more people on our Patreon because, you know, we do have actual jobs. Sorry, people. Indeed. But whoever wins is going to choose a bad or very silly sci-fi book and a bad or very ridiculous drink to go with it. And the person who loses has to read that book, drink the ridiculous drink, and then in a bonus episode, they'll tell the other person about it. Very nice. Yeah, we think it will be fun. But that's probably the end of our cocktail section. So Sarah, do you want to give a summary of this book? Indeed. So The Big Time by Fritz Lieber takes place during a time war between two factions called the Snakes and the Spiders. And the main character is an entertainer, Reed Prostitute, at a rest slash, I guess, like rest and recuperations center for um, soldiers in the time war that's kind of taking place outside of the space-time continuum. And so the snakes and the spiders are recruiting soldiers from different like periods of time all over the world who can come to these like recuperation stations. And you might think that the book is about that, 
but it kind of isn't really because what the book is actually about is it's kind of a locked room mystery because the main character and some of the other entertainers are stuck in the recuperation place, which is all they refer to it as, with a couple of soldiers with an atomic bomb and they're trying to figure out what the heck happened, which is also my reaction to basically everything that happened. So yeah, that's it. <laughs> I'm going to run through all the characters quickly so you have some idea who we're talking about. So there's Greta. She's the main character, the entertainer, and she works by Lily, who's the newer entertainer um, who is obsessed with Bruce Marchant, this new British poet from around World War One that thinks that they shouldn't be fighting the war at all. And then there's also Maud, who is the older entertainer. And the other people who work there with them are Doc, who's this crazy drunk Russian doctor. And the people passing through are Bruce, as I mentioned. Uh, Eric is the Nazi character. Um, we have Mark. He's your classic Roman. Then there's Illy, who's kind of this like Martian spider creature. And Cabby, who is his like partner in the war. And they're fighting side by side. And those are really all the main characters. And they just basically argue with each other for like 250 pages. But at this point, we're going to actually start talking about spoilers. So so if anything we've said has made you feel like you want to read the book, now would be the time to pause this, go read it, and then come back. And now I'm going to give you the history of this book. As I uh, mentioned two episodes ago, there's a lot of puzzlement up to the modern day of why they'd rather be right when a Hugo. I consider that book much better than this book. So I was truly baffled with the fact that people seem to like this book. Mm. This book was actually selected in 2012 for an inclusion in a series called Nine Classic Sci-Fi Novels of the 50s. So clearly that means someone liked it. But Fritz Leiber seems like a very interesting man. He kind of seems like someone who was looking for his place in the world and looking for answers from a fairly young age. So he got a bachelor's in psychology and then he started training to be an Episcopalian minister. Then he dropped out of seminary. Then he started a master's in philosophy and then he dropped out of that and in his late 20s started to write short stories. And an interesting thing is that he actually exchanged letters with Lovecraft and Lovecraft was really encouraging of his early work. And he did become a full-time writer, which at a time that was rare, like he didn't have any other job. He supported himself, his kid and his wife with being a full-time writer. For some reason, there's not a list of the other books that were considered for Hugo in 1958, but I did a little bit of research on the sci-fi books published in 1957 that could have potentially won. And there's a Robert Heinlein book, there's an Arthur C. Clarke book, there's a Ray Bradbury book, and I just have to imagine that any of those would have been superior to this. The funny thing is, is that I actually am quite a fan of some other work of Fritz Lieber because he has a series, while I was reading this, I was like, What's his name popping in my head? And then I remembered. He has a series called Fathered and the Grey Mouser. And those books are essentially just like very simple adventuring books. They're about two adventuring companions who go around and they fight witches and bandits and solve mysteries and help communities. And, you know, they have a maiden that they're in love with in each book, but for some reason it can't ever quite work. And, you know, they aren't anything special, but my brother and I used to read them when they when I was younger. And they're very fun, well-paced, and they take like two hours to read. So we 
we would sit down on our days off and both read it and then talk about it. So I don't know. It's interesting because I do like other things this writer has written, but I don't know exactly what happened with this book. Listeners, if any of you want to give us some theories as to why this book is popular, write on our Instagram. Send us, you know, send us your theories since I want to know what other people think. (laughs) Somebody please explain this to me. (laughs) Yeah, well, it's kind of like I really didn't like They'd Rather Be Right, but everyone doesn't like They'd Rather Be Right. So it didn't feel like a surprise to me. Whereas, well, I, so I, um, I was reading this book and I finished it and I was like, I have like literally nothing to say about this because I think that this is the most bored I have ever been. <laughs> like ever. I wouldn't even call it like the worst book I've <laughs> ever read because it like it just didn't inspire. I mean, I guess in some ways like that does make it one of the worst books I've ever read because it just didn't inspire like any sort of like emotional response from me whatsoever. Like even the books that I hate, I would call like at least on a, on a certain level, you like love to read a book so bad that you're like, oh my God, like I have to, I have to tell somebody about how bad this book is. But this book, it's just like, I like literally nothing happened. And I, I just don't understand, but exactly. But yeah, I looked up, I looked at reviews for the book. I found an audiobook for the book because I was like, well, maybe if I listen to it again, and then I listened to like, I don't know, maybe a quarter of it. And I was like, I can't do this. <laughs> I can't experience this again. Um, but everyone was like, oh, yeah, I really love this book. And I was like, but ha- like, why? What are you reading that I'm not seeing here? Yeah, because the thing is, what to say about this book? So when I was reading it, what it brought to mind for me is when I was in my second year of high school, I took a class called AP US History, which was fairly common for people to take and the very first assignment that you had to do for the class which I remember because I had so much fun with it was you had to write a short story that included 10 events from American history they could be any events they could be small they could be large but that'd be for American history and to be honest this book felt like some others high schoolers assignment for the world history version of that (laughs) Well, so the book basically starts how I would write stories in high school. It's basically like, hey, just so you know, I'm the main character. This is what the book's about. Did you wonder why the name of the book is The Big Time? It's because we're in the big time. And it's like, oh, no. I always think it's a bad sign when books start with hitting you over the head with things like Yeah, exactly. It's like, let me explain what the book is about. And it's like, oh, God, no. God, please, no. But I mean, I think like one of the only things that I thought was like, okay about the book was that I think that the main character like the narrating character at the very least had a voice that was clearly distinct from the authorial voice and that was good because it was like okay well at least some semblance of a character has been created here because otherwise it would just be like I mean because like in in the other books it was like there even if it was in actually I'm trying to remember. I think all the other three books that we read were in third person, but I think that a lot of first person perspective writing is like, okay, a character has been constructed because that's what novels are, but I'm being spoken to directly by a real person. Yeah. The downside of it was, though, is that I at least found the first character very annoying. Mm. I didn't love her or hate her in terms of, like, voice. I really, I just, I didn't really love her mannerisms and 
it just, I don't know. It may have just been the type of person he was constructing, but she's just sort of there and she's outrageously peppy when she doesn't really have any right to be. And in some ways, it felt like she was telling us like random things that weren't enjoyable or useful and were just distracting from me trying to figure out what the fuck was going on. And I'm not even really sure exactly why she was chosen as the main character out of the cast. Yeah. Well, I just don't... I mean, I say that there was like a semblance of a character because at least as far as I could glean, like none of the... There there were characters in the sense that there were named individuals who served a purpose in the plot, but they didn't really have like personalities. They felt really kind of like gimmicky in terms of... Like there was like a poet from like Shakespearean era England and it was like his whole thing was like, I'm a poet! And I was like, okay, well, but like, what else though? <laughs> like, yeah, the other thing that was very lame, but that particular character is, is that there was a different person in this small space-time continuum who by complete coincidence had always been obsessed with him that poet in particular which I was like that that's ridiculous but I do agree with Sarah it did really feel because it's like it did feel like we got our stereotypical time characters we didn't get anyone like interestingly out of space because we had him and then we had our woman beating Nazi Mm -hmm. and then we had our ancient Roman and it's kind of like it's not exactly like this But Sarah, have you ever watched Red Letter Media? Probably not. So, folks out there, if you enjoy this podcast, you would probably like Red Letter Media. I'm not being paid to advertise for them. I'm just a fan. But they are a group of dudes who live in Wisconsin, and they review movies. And they became particularly famous with their Star Wars. And one of them likes to say the phrase when he's talking about Star Wars movies, these are things I know. When he's like making fun of the fact that in like the new Star Wars movies, they're like, oh yeah, what do Star Wars fans know? Let's do a throwback to all those things because we can't make new things. And I think the thing is, is that I would say if it's gotta be a book where you're pulling characters at a time, which isn't necessarily a terrible idea, pull them out of some more interesting times. Don't make them just stereotypes of the very basic times that people know. Like, I don't know, instead of a Roman, pull a Carthaginian. Instead of some a British guy from um, World War One, pull a South African guy from the Boer War. Like, I don't know, at least be unique with your history. Or even if you're not going to be unique with your history, at least be unique with the character. Like, think about the fact that people are people. <laughs> and have thoughts and feelings that make them interesting no matter where they come from or like when they lived like they ha- like it's not just oh they're they're a roman soldier that's it folks like they like what are they thinking and feeling that makes them compelling to read about because otherwise it's just like i literally i cannot even make myself care about what's happening to even the slightest degree Yeah, well, the thing with this really was, was I think this was part of the reason why it annoyed me so much that they were from, like, very well-known times of history, was the main character, sorry, not the main character, the author basically just said, I have these characters from these very well-known times of history, so I don't need to explain to you who they are. Right, yeah. Because you already have an idea in your head of who a Roman is, and guess what? That character is just that. You think you know what a Nazi Mm -hmm. is? Guess what? He's just that. You think you know who a sad Mm -hmm. boy 
boy fighting a World War One is? We got that character for you. And it's like, okay. So the only characters that all that intrigued me in this, even the slightest, were... So this time war that they're taking part of has been going on for millions of years before humans and technically millions of years after humans. So one of the people who's a soldier who comes to visit them is a Martian from a society that lived on Mars several millions of years before humans. And he's like this giant silky spider boy. And I kind of actually like that because I was like, oh, I don't know what this is. This isn't something I know. This might actually be interesting. And it wasn't that interesting, but at least it was a new concept. But the other thing that I will say potentially in defense of this is that mm. sci-fi is just starting in the 19th. And I don't super know this, but I would bet this is one of the first time travel books ever. Right. So it is possible that even with having everything being very stereotyped to very well-known times people of his era thought it was very creative whereas we're like time travels old you know make it more make it more interesting but even with that i think it's not very well written but maybe people of the time would find that interesting. i don't know yeah i mean there definitely was i mean i think that this is like the like the first boom of like like modern sci-fi and I mean, I don't know. I think that, like, I don't know. I don't know if I necessarily buy that as a defense of this book, because I don't think that the concept, like, I think that at the time, the idea that time travel is something that could have possibly been achieved by human technology would have been a new concept. But the idea of traveling through time is not, I think, new to literature in the 50s. So I think that, I mean... Yeah, that's true. And I'm not defending this book because... I think this book was pretty shit. I just, <laughs> I'm just trying to think of like anything nice I can possibly say about it. <laughs> yeah, I, <laughs> I just feel bad trashing it for so long. Indeed. Yeah, I, I feel like I don't, I mean, I, I don't feel like I can like trash it as much as it's just like, I, like if I had not been like obligated to read it, I definitely would not have finished it because I have like no qualms about like starting a book and not finishing it. But I just like, it's just so unmemorable. I don't know. It's just. And the mystery is real boring. Yeah. Well, it's just kind of like, I don't, like, why go through all the trouble to, like, create, like, this fictional setting where something, like, arguably pretty interesting is happening? And then be like, no, actually, it's not about that in any way whatsoever. It's actually about this other completely boring thing that nobody really cares about because it's only affecting, like, this small group of characters that has, like, absolutely, like, no charisma to them whatsoever. Yeah, and the mystery of this to be honest felt to me slightly reminiscent of what's Edgar Allan Poe's first one murders in the room morgue have you read that don't think so so the thing about the murders in the room morgue apologies to anyone this is a spoiler Spoilers alert for a story that came out 200 years ago. <laughs> yes. And the thing about the story is at the end, they're like, psych, it was an orangutan and you couldn't have known that. <laughs> and it's like, well, it's sort of forgiven because it's like one of the first mystery stories like that of all time. So Edgar Allan Poe gets a pass, but it's sort of like, what's the point of a mystery that I couldn't have solved? Right. Yeah. And that's why I think that like the same thing with like the Sherlock BBC adaptation, where like pretty much every episode it was just like let's watch Sherlock like defy like 
<laughs> like to the point where it was like Sherlock is so smart that he defies death and it was like okay well that's like not the point of the Sherlock Holmes like I can understand like it's been adapted to death like you can take a new angle on it I don't think that a Sherlock Holmes adaptation necessarily has to be a mystery story anymore because the character I think is like transcended the genre but it's also like you think like it seems like you think that this is a mystery story and it's important to me that you understand that it's not <laughs> yeah exactly well because the key part of a mystery story is that the reader could have figured it out themselves. They don't have to have. You can make it really hard. Right, yeah. But if the reader can't figure it out, it's just unfair. And I'm just going to briefly summarize for you listeners what the mystery was in this book so you can get an idea of how dumb it was. So there are these like greater inverter machines that just hang out in the place and they prevent people from well they prevent the place from falling apart and they prevent people from getting pregnant for some reason that was very unclear but and then there are inverter machines which it's not explained to us really how in the inverter works but you sort of understand that in theory it turns things inside out and the main character of Eventually, it's like when it solves the mystery of, well, the British dude is passionately given a speech about how dumb the war is and the Nazi and the German guy or Nazi and the early romantic guy are scoffing because of course that's what they do his girlfriend steals the machine that's keeping them like there and she inverts it so it's like still technically keeping the place from falling apart but it's turned into a different shape but we don't understand how the inverter works so we don't know that it can do that and that it will still be working and so when the main character is like ta-da i've solved the mystery of where it went it's just that this person turned it inside out it's like well you didn't give me the pieces for this to be honest it, it tells you it's going to be a time travel adventure and then you briefly think it's going to be a mystery adventure but it's really just about a series of boring men arguing and someone watching them and being like man i hope they don't punch me again and it's like ah wonderful also can we talk about the creepy vaguely prostitution implied sort of thing yeah it was just kind of odd i don't know yeah so this place that these people are in is like this rest in recuperation center right and the main character is like yes we're there to help people relax and heal in whatever way possible and then like nothing explicitly sexual ever happens but it's like clear that all the girls who work there have a bunch of boyfriends like based on like who comes in who like needs their attention and they like dance with them and like kiss whatever boyfriend they're with and it seems like they're just like there to make the men who are coming in from more happy so it feels like maybe they have sex with everyone it's not explicitly said though so maybe they don't but it just felt very odd yeah it was just a strange it was just a strange setting i don't know like the everything about this was very strange and did not quite make sense to me but the thing is is that i feel like the basic idea has potential yeah. And I feel like even some of the characters from this had potential if you gave them a little bit more. Mm. The thing that I found very disappointing about it is, so, the beginning of the book is just, they're hanging out in the place, and it's boring, and then a bunch of new warriors come through with an atomic bomb that they're supposed to detonate somewhere. And I thought that they were going to go 
to the battlefield and detonate the bomb because that would have been interesting. But instead, they just stay in the place and argue about the bomb. Were they able to leave the place while the bomb was there? So, well, what happens is they come with the bomb and they're arguing about whether they're even going to undertake this mission at all. Because the British guy thinks that instead Mm. they should go on a new mission to try to stop the time and to try to protect the original timeline whenever necessary. Because the time war is causing it to shift. Mm. And some people are with him and some people aren't with him. And while he's giving this speech, his girlfriend inverts the thing that's keeping them all there. And they just notice that it's disappeared. So then they're like, ah, fuck, we're stuck here. And then they've been there for a few days. They're all glassy eyed. And then his girlfriend gives a grand speech about how, well, here they can have this like new, like perfect life and shows that one of the other girls is pregnant, which is very exciting. And then the Nazi responds to that by diving and setting the bomb to say you have 30 minutes to figure out what happens and then the main character is immediately like oh i know what happens Mm. it's not that interesting it's kind of like oh okay so i guess the thing in this book is is that there's like a like three different seconds three different moments where it feels like slightly interesting premises are maybe set up and then they're all they all fit but yeah is there anything else with this book that you want to talk about sarah well it made me think of this is how you lose the time war by amal el mutar and max gladstone which i'm looking at the wikipedia page now and apparently it's the 2020 hugo award for best novella so we can do a special episode on that at some point perhaps we show so what's that book which is so it's about a science fiction obviously it's a science fiction novel but it's about a time war that there's these two soldiers who on like opposite sides of the time war who have fallen in love with each other or are falling in love with each other i don't know i read half of it like probably like four years ago and then i stopped reading it because i was reading it on audiobook and as an audiobook i thought it was really confusing but i think that it would be a really good book to just like read yeah i think the criteria for audiobooks and normal books are different yeah well i think my the main issue with it is that so it's like a um like the main characters are lesbians and i thought that the audiobook narrators for the two women just sounded really similar to each other so as I was listening to it I also was like just doing a bunch of stuff I was like working so (laughs) I didn't necessarily maybe give it the best shot but the the fact that the the two narrators sounded really similar to each other I wasn't able to figure out what they were who was talking when and it was also like letters that they were writing to each other so a lot of time they were like small details that I would like miss and then it was very confusing but it's I've heard many good things about the book, so. Yeah, in general, I gotta say, I don't love audiobooks because I feel like it depends so much on the narrator. I feel like it's easy to miss things that you would get when you're reading it. But, like, also, I don't know about you, but when you're reading an audiobook and someone, like, shouts at the other person, it just makes me stressed. Yeah, that's why, like, I don't, I like audiobooks, and I actually, like, listen to a lot of, a lot of audiobooks now that I can just, like, I have, like, my little library app, so I can just get them on my phone and just, you know, do things, like, listen to them while I'm, like, doing other stuff. And I really like that because I like, because I like to read, <laughs> and I like to do things. So it is good for that reason. And but I will say that I am pretty selective on like what types of things I read, because 
I think that memoirs usually are pretty good and I like fiction if like I have really really specific criteria for like fiction that I'll listen to on audiobook like I have to like the the narrator has to be good I also usually speed them up because I think that in general audiobooks go too slow and it's like if the plot isn't like too convoluted which is what I read anyways so yeah I just a little while back I tried to listen to a Kim Stanley Robinson book on audio with my brother and my boyfriend friend while you're driving and I'm not a big Kim Stanley Robinson fan in general as you'll find out when we get to the Mars series because two of those won Hugo's and I really don't like Red Mars. I think it had a lot of promise but I think it wasted a lot of that promise on Mm. a weird love triangle. Spoilers for the future but at one point in the book that we listened to the audio of it's like one of his books about like what the future of the earth could become and there's this like new eu environmental agency and this guy kidnaps the head of it and is like violently holding her and is shouting at her about how she's like not doing enough and he gives this like five minute speech about it and literally him yelling at her in that audiobook for like five minutes like stressed me and my boyfriend out for the rest of the day because it was just very unpleasant and so I think it's just like audiobooks where anyone gets upset at anyone is like I don't know about that boys yeah I recently read an audiobook that was it was corrections in ink by uh I think her name is I want to say it's Lori Blakinger or no, Carrie Blakinger. And it's a memoir um, from a woman who like developed like a heroin addiction and then ended up being incarcerated. And so obviously like just like a lot of horrible things happened to her in her life. And it, it was a it was a great memoir because, you know, talked about a lot of interesting and important topics. And also, you know, she became really successful, found like a really great vocation in journalism. But listening to the audiobook like narrated by the author was pretty difficult. But I do I mean in general I, I like I like to listen to an audiobook. Yeah, it's fair. But uh, I feel like we've gotten slightly off topic. So do you have any last thoughts you want to say about the big time? Not really. I mean, it was an interesting exploration into like real life time manipulation because although my copy was only 80 pages long, it felt like an eternity while I was reading it. So (laughs) That's true. Yeah, exactly. My copy, I think, was like 120 pages long and it took me a very long time because I really didn't want to finish it. So I feel that. For for the listeners out there, I read an average of a book a day between my fiction and my nonfiction collection. And it has been many years since I have not finished. The last one was a crazy journal that a guy wrote after he woke up from a coma, which I can tell people about sometime. The listeners want to know. But this book, I genuinely think that if I hadn't had to read it for this podcast, I would have given up on it. Even though it was so short. Because it was boring. It was meandering. It occasionally offered promises of it being interesting and then immediately snuffed those promises, which is almost more disappointing if it hadn't offered any promises at all but I think the overall idea of a time war is very interesting and of the idea of well there's a time war there are people that remember how time used to be there were a few moments in it where it talked about how people who like remembered their deaths were always a little bit on the edge of going crazy and I would have loved if I had leaned into that darkness that would right yeah yeah that's the thing about like these early Hugo winners where they have like these really interesting settings and kind of these really interesting 
interesting scenarios that would really like mentally and emotionally deeply affect a person but i i don't know like yeah i I just don't understand i guess it's like a different era of writing where that's just not really the main focus and the main focus is kind of like more on this it's like a more detached way of uh discussing those ideas or those scenarios which maybe part of it is is that mental health isn't as acceptable of a discussion in the 50s but Mm. yeah it does feel like they kind of set up these interesting discussions about like how this would fuck people up and then they just never really go far and they're like oh yeah this woman's just sad because she can't find a husband and it's like are you sure it's not more than that fam but you know i'm just i'm just talking as as someone with uh with their own mental health problems yeah But I think what I would say about this book is don't read it. It's my recommendation. Unless you are determined to read every book who won a Hugo, you're as crazy as us and you want to follow us, don't read it. And save your reading time for a case of conscience, which we'll be talking about in a few weeks because... Yeah. I won't give anything away about it, but the book we'll be talking about next time, that is an interesting setting, and it actually uses it. Indeed. Yeah, A Case of Conscience is actually an interesting book that is fairly good, I would say. Yeah, so it's been interesting reading these early sci-fi novels because i mean it's not as if like like to go back to your point about mental health just not being as big of an issue in the 50s it's not even like necessarily that because like obviously at the time like people were still writing like deeply emotionally complex stories but as much as it's just like i don't know i guess it's like the action movie of the time i guess yeah maybe obviously i don't know maybe this book is like the equivalent of a bad marvel movie yeah (laughs) that people read and think it's fun because I, I because I genuinely I am so confused like if anyone cannot can enlighten me I'm very confused about the fact that this book has good ratings because they're like who is giving this this and why I want to know yeah I just don't really understand like I guess I just don't know what the appeal is yeah neither do I but yeah tell us and on that note is if you liked it please let me know why (laughs) yeah please explain because it's not as if i'm like this book is bad and everyone should hate it but it's like i just i literally just don't understand yeah neither do i'm just confused we're both confused we are both very confused people asking for your help (laughs) to explain why you might have enjoyed this book or why you hated it and if you haven't read it yet go read demolished man or devil star or a case of conscience for the next episode don't read this and on that we shall leave you farewell our listeners indeed keep it zesty keep it cool (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.